Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this event, this IFG live event, part of a day of discussions we're having on civil service reform. And we're very glad to have been working with Oracle on all of these. I'm Roman Maddox, the director of the Institute. And I'm delighted to be having this in conversation with Jonathan Slater, permanent secretary at the Department for Education for the last four years and head of the civil service policy profession for the last few months. And that's quite a bit of what we're going to be talking about. I should say as well that Jonathan is on the IFG board. We're very glad of his presence there. I know Jonathan has been thinking a lot and uh, in those few spare moments between dealing with the coronavirus emergency about the civil service reform, how policy should be made and implemented and what the big challenges of the next few years are going to be. Jonathan is kindly going to speak for 10 or 15 minutes. First, I'm going to discuss some of the points he raises with him then, and then it's open to questions. Please do send your questions and please do, um, if you want, uh, let us know where you are speaking from, where in the world. And um, if you're not keen on giving your full name, do, um, if you feel you can, give your first name, as we always like to know. With that, a very warm welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Bronwyn. Thanks very much for inviting me along to what looks like uh, one of a series of very interesting sessions on the subject of civil service reform today. Um, absolutely delighted uh, to join the conversation uh, and um, let's uh, see where it takes us. Uh, the last time I was with the Institute on the subject of the policy profession, I was listening to Chris Wormald, my predecessor, who handed over after seven years in role um, to me at the beginning of 2020. And he was talking about um, the 12 point action plan that he had been uh, leading for um, that time. And I thought taught persuasively about putting in place really clear professional standards for policymakers across government, whether that be on the use of evidence, on understanding politics, or seeing ideas through into action. And he talked also, I thought, well, about the training programs that we put in place, executive masters at one end of the spectrum, policy apprenticeships at the other end of the spectrum, and civil servants learning from each other. Uh, so clearly, a, a, you know, a lot of work done uh, under Chris's leadership on professionalizing policy. After that, I went along to listen to John Manzoni uh, talk at the Institute. Uh, this was in the days, of course, when we could physically uh, visit the building. Uh, and he was talking about the work he'd been leading on professionalizing uh, what he called the functions, commercial, finance, technology, digital, and so on. And I think, again, uh, you know, John has a lot to be proud of um, if you compare the quality of uh, commercial advice and digital work um, now with five years ago. You know, it is remarkable to see the difference. Um, so, uh, looking at Chris and um, John at work, you know, it, it makes me wonder for a bit. Well, what am I going to contribute? Um, uh, how can I uh, how can I match that? Um, and uh, to start with, a sort of uh, um, health warning: I'm not about to share you with you my 12-point plan. Um, uh, I'm not at that stage of the process, partly because I've only just taken on the role, partly because coronavirus has been keeping all of us, hasn't it, incredibly busy, uh, but also because, as you'd expect. Um, I think we're much better likely to come up with a plan if we come up with one together, collaborating, uh, sharing thoughts inside government, outside. Uh, yet last week I was talking with a thousand policymakers inside the civil service, a part of civil service live, but the conversation needs to go on uh, uh, right across um, the country and beyond, doesn't it? Uh, what do people lucky enough to be on the receiving end of government policy think, uh, whether they're in local government, in business, whether they are the end users? Uh, what do, uh, and in particular, what do ministers um, think? After all, they're the ones who will make the decisions in due course. And of course, I've been um, 
listening carefully to Michael Gove, setting out the government's overall ambition for civil service reform and talking carefully to Alex Chisholm, who's got the lead on turning that plan into reality. So um, you'll have to invite me back uh, if you want the 12 point plan, but I'm very happy this afternoon to share with you my initial thoughts, instincts, why I suppose I took the role on in the first place. Um, and um, uh, to get uh, to get myself going on that, um, I remember Chris, when he took on the policy profession role, saying, well, of course, policy isn't really a profession in the sense that you don't have to get to a particular, um, you know, a, a, you don't have to pass a particular academic qualification uh, to do policy in the way you do if you want to become an accountant or a lawyer. Um, and so it's not a profession in the normal sense of the word. Uh, I'm going to suggest that not only was he right about that, but that neither is um, the policy profession uh, a uh, about policy in the way that you might read it in the dictionary. Uh, you know, a standard dictionary definition of policy would talk about um, a set of ideas or actions. Um, whereas when you talk to civil servants about why they join the policy profession, they always say the same thing. They join the civil service to make a difference, to make a difference, to achieve a real world outcome for the public at large. They don't say in order to write a submission or even a green paper or even a piece of legislation. I mean, these may well be means towards the end, uh, but the end is to make a difference. And although this is a sort of obvious point, um, uh, it, you know, it, it does seem to me worthy of repeating. Uh, the policy making is only worth its salt if it is about achieving a real world outcome that can be described uh, to citizens, either individually or collectively, and that uh, the work of a policymaker is to achieve those outcomes on behalf, of course, of the ministers who set the overall direction for them. Uh, th that's uh, how I define policy making. That's uh, in the conversations I've had with colleagues inside the civil services, what they all want to be. And when they reflect on their careers to date, when they are proudest, when they're happiest. Uh, Gus O'Donnell, uh, when he was cabinet secretary, talked about the importance of being proud. He also talked about the importance of being passionate, a word that was not expected perhaps uh, 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 that he would use about the work that we do. But I think what he meant uh, was that to do the work we do, you need to be really, really you know, keen to actually make the difference happen on the ground and you want to be held uh, to account for achieving that outcome. Um, so that's what policymaking means to me. And so the question, and I say so far to pretty much everybody I've spoken to, uh, and so the question, therefore, is, um, well, uh, when, is, when we're like that, what is it about the way, the way we operate which enables us to be genuinely accountable for delivering real-world outcomes? And then, you know, what stands in our way? If I look back over my career, I can think of a couple of occasions when I felt enormously proud uh, for the work I'd, uh, I did. On one occasion, uh, I was able to claim some, you know, credits for uh, about twice as many children passing five good GCSEs uh, in a particular part of London as a consequence of my action. Uh, uh, about 10 years later, uh, I was able to make a practical difference to the likelihood of prisoners coming out of prison reoffending. Those are the things I felt the proudest about and they were because they were about achieving outcomes. Um, I I'll come back to some of the ingredients uh, that made that possible. Um, but similarly, if you talk to the head of the policy profession and Department of Education, um, what, uh, what has she been about in her time in post? Well, the thing she spent the most time on is ensuring that all three and four year olds in the country uh, whose parents wanted them to have access to free childcare got it. 
And she saw that through from beginning to end, from the idea and manifesto through to its conclusion. That's what good policymaking is. Uh, so if, if that's what we want to achieve, then uh, uh, how can we make sure that's something that we do more of the time? Um, partly, it seems to me it's a, a question of mindset. Uh, you know, that, that's why I've started this talk by just reinforcing what policymaking means. It's very easy um, uh, to think about the, the first stage of the process, uh, the, uh, uh, the engagement inside Whitehall. Whitehall is often uh, shorthand, described as a shorthand for policymaking, but really it isn't. Um, it, it's just a bit of the process. Uh, so, you know, mindset, reinforcing the point, uh, reminding people why they join the civil service in the first place, um, that, that is a very important part of this. Um, but of course, uh, however enthusiastic we all are to be held to account for delivering outcomes, we can only do that effectively if the incentives that are placed upon us uh, encourage us to facilitate us operating that way. Um, and the Institute has, you know, has published quite recently uh, research into um, the issue of churn. Because um, uh, clearly you can't achieve, you can't be held accountable for delivering outcomes if you move every 12 months or 18 months or 24 months. You've got to be in post long enough uh, to see the thing through. Uh, as, as I say, the head of my policy profession in the DfE has been which means, uh, as of course has been discussed many times before, uh, we need um, to be able to reward people for um, staying in role and for achieving outcomes. And we, it may be uh, helpful, Bronwyn, for us to talk in, in a while, if, if you find that helpful, about some of the opportunities I see that we have to change the, uh, the pay regime uh, that would encourage people to stay in role. I remember um, one of my regional directors in the DfE joining us from um, Manchester City Council a couple of years ago and said to me, Jonathan, why is it that uh, people seem to apply for a promotion in, uh, in the civil service before they've actually achieved something with the job they were currently doing? And clearly we do need to change the HR systems uh, in support of this, um, uh, th th this way of doing things. And as I say, I, if it would be helpful, I could say a bit more about that uh, shortly. Um, and another thing that uh, I'm struck by when I reflect on uh, those things that I've done or uh, the head of my policy profession or others right across government, when have they been at their best? What, what, what has been the, um, uh, what has made it good? Partly, as I say, it's about staying in job long enough um, to uh, deliver. Um, uh, partly is about it, it being a team sport. So, you know, policymaking is, is no good if it's only done by policymakers, uh, will be another way of thinking about it. Um, you know, the, the, the work um, uh, that Michelle has done to oversee the implementation of uh, uh, 30 hours childcare has been a, a very strong partnership um, between the, the civil service, um, local government, childcare providers within the civil service. She's had to work very collaboratively with commercial, finance, digital people. It's a, it's a team sport. Um, rather than sort of handoffs from policymakers to analysts or policymakers to delivery people. It's, a, it, it, it's done, when it's done well, it's done as a team sport. I was talking to colleagues from DWP uh, the other day uh, about the way that they seek to get um, policymakers testing out the implications of the policy that they're thinking about. You know, within 24 hours of the idea, they can be out in a job center trying it out seeing what it, whether it would work in practice. Um, so, so anything I can do uh, to create a sense of 
a team of people accountable for delivering an outcome, incentivized so to do, in which the, the role of the policymaker is convener, bringing together the team. Um, the policymaker accountable for the outcome has to be an expert in the subject matter. In my case, uh, in education, expert on children or expert on teaching or expert on adult learning. Whereas the, uh, the commercial and digital data people are experts in their functions. So you could imagine a project management specialist moving uh, easily between the Department of Education and the Ministry of Defence. A project management is project management. You've got to have an interest in the subject matter, but your specialism is project management. The policymaker, their specialism is delivering outcomes in the area that they know, which might be children or might be national security. It's unlikely to be both. These are specialist subjects in which policymakers really need to understand the subject. They need to spend a lot of time with their customers, really getting to grips with what it's like in a school. Uh, or um, out with the army, uh, depending on the subject matter, uh, and then as a team player, delivering outcomes on the ground. Uh, uh, that's probably enough, uh, Bronwyn, uh, to get us going. If you, but I'm very happy to explore how we might turn some of those things into reality, if that would be helpful, as well as give examples of where I've seen that work well or badly to date. I hope that's a, a helpful introduction. Jonathan, thanks very much indeed for kicking us off like that. Well, no, that is indeed, that, that's enough to provoke loads and loads of questions from me and other people as well, I suspect. Let, let's start with um, one of your points and the, the later bit of that. What you've described is potentially quite a significant shift away from policy making as we've come to know it. And I wondered whether you thought that it meant senior civil servants staying in their jobs for much longer than they are at the moment. So I, I, I think... Um... Um, it's, it's, it's important uh, um, not to, but it's almost impossible in an event like this uh, to succeed in not generalising, <laughs> because clearly the situation is different in different parts of the civil service. And clearly there are the significant parts of the civil service where people stay a long time in their job and they develop real expertise. Um, so if you were to look in the Ministry of Defence, for example, there are a lot of people who spend the whole of their careers there and there's no question about their expertise in the subject matter. And you can see that in transport, you can see that in working pensions. You can indeed see it in education with some people. So um, it's not that um, everybody is turning around all the time. And of course, if you stay in your job too long, uh, then um, um, you know you need to, um, some other people to come along and suggest how things uh, could be innovated. So you want the right balance. But yes, I think everybody I speak to, uh, I speak to says that there's not enough in the system that incentivizes people to be held to account for delivering an outcome. And in particular, I mean, this is the sort of simple touch point. Uh, it is easier to get a pay rise uh, uh, if you move than if you stay. Uh, and hence my point about the importance of changing the pay regime uh, to put that right. Well, can we just dwell on that for a second? Because this comes up a lot. And I, I'm delighted to say, as, as the Institute does argue this a lot, and we've done a piece of work uh, a couple of years ago about um, how destructive turnover of civil servants can be, and ministers as well, but uh, that's not what we're talking about right now. Um, what exactly would you do to change the pay and promotion regimes to slow people down? I'm lucky to have uh, taken this role on at precisely the moment when a task and finish group uh, led by Peter Schofield, my counterpart at Work and Pensions, but working collaboratively with the Treasury and others, um, has just reported on its proposals for reform of uh, senior civil service pay. 
uh, and along with Peter and uh, I think Tom Scholar uh, and others, uh, other permanent secretaries, um, we were invited to um, advise the senior pay review body um, in the last few months on this work. Uh, and um, I've been asked now as the head of the policy profession to design a pay regime for policymakers in the SES consistent with the work of that task and finish group. And basically uh, the proposal is that we should define what standard policymaking is at deputy director level, director level, DG level, uh, and what um, good looks like and what great looks like. Uh, and if you move from standard to good, um, you get a pay rise because of what you've achieved and from good to great likewise. And so in the context of the uh, talk I've just been given, clearly you would move from standard to good uh, on the basis of having achieved a real world outcome. And you'd move from good to great on the basis of that outcome being a particularly difficult one to achieve. And so you, your pay would be because of what you had, a, your pay rise would be based on what you've achieved uh, rather than anything else. And you'd, be able to, you'd have to be able to demonstrate uh, what you'd achieved and how your knowledge uh, on your subject matter had grown in that time. So, so that's um, that, that, that we're designing that uh, system at the moment. We've been asked to be ready to implement it uh, from the new financial year. Of course, it'll need to take its place alongside all the other considerations in the spending review, but there is a great opportunity to do something real and concrete in this space, and I'm looking forward to it. And you, you put an emphasis there on, on, on the knowledge and, and how their knowledge of um, their subject has, has come along, which is something I know we at the Institute would very much welcome. So look, it really does take time to get to grips with um, any any subject area, and some of them are immensely com complicated. But what does that mean then for the skills that you want uh, policy officials to have? Uh, are they going to be more like contractors sort of bringing in digital and commercial and legal skills or you know which are the skills that you think are absolutely essential if someone is going to get on in this? Well um, as is obvious from my uh, earlier words one thing they've got to be is a good team player. Nobody's got no, nobody's got everything. Uh, Chris was absolutely right um, uh, I thought when he uh, set out at the Institute the importance of a policymaker knowing enough uh, about analysis, analysis uh, about delivery uh, to be able to engage in a proper conversation with those people who were uh, the experts, um, uh, couldn't claim to be those person themselves. And I've sought to distinguish uh, in what I've said between the role of the policymaker accountable for delivering the outcome, convening a team of people. Uh, so they've got to be a really good team player. Um, they've got to be somebody who, um, for, for, um, for whom the, their expertise is, is on the subject matter. Um, it, it's so you know a good thing about the Department for Education if you, is if you work in this schools group, um, you need to spend at least uh, three. Uh, you need to take part in the school immersion program. You spend three days in the school, a day with the child, a day with the teacher, a day with the head. I did that when I arrived. It's you know it's 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 a rewarding thing to do. But obviously three days is not enough. Uh, you know it, to really know what's going on in schools, you've got to spend a lot of your time in school, haven't you? You really do. You really need, need to understand the subject matter alongside, of course the policy making process uh, that um, I've, I've already said Chris put a lot of time and effort into making sure was um, was built into the um, uh, was built was built into the, the, the people's career. So I would say the thing I'm adding to that is um, is a deep subject matter expertise gained from spending as much time as possible with the relevant citizens, customers, uh, delivery agents. And uh, the notion of teamwork, and not as an abstract concept, uh, but I, I, in my own experience, the best way to learn uh, how to work as part of an integrated team in delivering outcome 
is to do it, uh, is to have some experiential learning of it. Uh, and I, I see plenty of opportunities for us to put that into place right from the earliest point in people's careers. So what do you do about accountability within all this? I mean, some people have said, and, and I'm thinking of voices in Parliament who've said, um, we want civil servants to stay in their jobs much longer so that they can be accountable for the projects that they are advising on and, and for us in Parliament to be able to bring them back, uh, even if they've moved on to another job, to try and increase the accountability in the system for the advice that's given. Yes, well, I, I, you, you've heard me use the word accountability um, uh, more than once this afternoon, and, and I feel at my best uh, when I genuinely feel uh, accountable for delivering something uh, and that's when I feel um, proudest and uh, most fulfilled and that's been my experience of um, the civil servants that I've worked with and in the conversations I've I've been having. It's a team sport uh, isn't it and um, you know ministers are part of the team I mean obviously they're in charge of the team aren't they uh, but um, uh, uh, again if I were to look back to um, those circumstances where I've been most effective. Um, it's been, you know, when there was really good clarity between the overall political direction. Uh, even when I was working 20 years ago on that GCSE thing, uh, you know, it was clear what the Secretary of State uh, wanted, what the Special Advisor Number 10 wanted, what the civil service wanted, what the local authority wanted, what the head teacher wanted, and they wanted the same thing and they were working together and they could achieve it. And they felt a sense of team so that if something happened on the ground which had not been foreseen at the beginning then it got reported back the minister was of course in the end the decision maker that's a that's the nature of democracy and it's a jolly good thing too uh, but it iterated as you went uh, and um that, that that seems to me to have uh, a lot to be um a, a, a great deal of merit it's, it's more complicated than the notion that the minister sets the direction and then we get on with it um but you, you know operating agilely reporting in and out um as we go you know that that seems to me um that that seems to me the way that things normally work and you know it's possible obviously to have an, an engagement with a parliamentary uh, committee um which might be less forgiving uh than um is implied by what i've suggested uh, but i try whenever i'm in front of a select committee to just explain that reality and explain that i was doing the best i could in the circumstances i found myself in and i can't ask for any more from anybody else than that well thank, thanks very much indeed for that I was wondering what role you thought policy professionals had in challenging the, the feasibility or the value for money of proposed projects? Uh, well, it's not only a good idea, but it's uh, it's the law that they must do so. Um, so the, uh, it, it, you know, uh, the civil service code requires us to operate, as you know, impartially, um, honestly, and so on. Uh, and it's the law of the land. Uh, when I became an, an accounting officer, um, you know, one of the first training courses I went on uh, was uh, about uh, how to fulfil the responsibility on my shoulders uh, to make sure that I did advise uh, ministers on uh, feasibility, on value for money, on regularity and propriety. Uh, and uh, when I was being asked, um, how long ago was it? Could it, could it really have been uh, two years ago? Um, to do something which it looked to me and the team was very, very hard to do in the time available. Um, uh, you know, I sought a, a direction. It's absolutely entirely right and proper for ministers to say, we want you to take uh, a significant amount of delivery risk. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's on our shoulders. Uh, just as it's my job to say, if you, if you take that course of action, there is a significant doubt as to whether it can be achieved on time. Uh, they decide, we advise. Nothing wrong with that system. I, I want to explore this point a bit more because um, 
It's been a feature of British government really for some decades now to farm out uh, delivery or implementation to arm's length bodies in, in some areas. Do you think that that's had its day? I mean, you, you're arguing for a much more united sense of what policy and, and delivery are like. So, you know, if we look back over various uh, civil service reform efforts over the last 50 years or so, goodness me, am I that old? Um, you know, obviously we find some have been more successful and more sustained than others. And one of the reforms that I think we'd all agree was definitely been sustained, was a great idea. Uh, and, you know, um, it was still in place in the switch from Margaret Thatcher, who devised it through to John Major, through to Tony Blair, and even now, was the creation of Next Steps agencies. Uh, and, uh, you know, undeniably, um, that was a set of reforms whose time had come. Uh, the notion that um, far too much of the civil service uh, was not properly um, delivery oriented uh, and customer focused, um, and that needed to be fixed. I was just reading last night, actually, um, uh, the, the, the 1988 report by Kate Jenkins and her colleagues in the efficiency unit, and it was a great piece of work, uh, and it did lead to a significant amount of transformation. But if you're not careful, um, uh, it, it can imply, can't it, that, that um, those of us left behind, those of us not in the agencies, um, are somehow not responsible uh, for being customer focused in our work because that's what the delivery people do. And of course, that was not what Kate and her colleagues meant, and that wasn't the problem they were kind of trying to confront. Um, they were confronting a different one. But the issue I'm interested in, my responsibility, is to make sure that policymakers um, are just as focused on achieving you know, great outcomes uh, for citizens as the people who work in the agencies. And, you know, we're all used to the idea of clever policy people handing stuff over, throwing stuff over the wall. It's all sorts of um, metaphors used to deliver people to get on with. And, and no, I, I, um, the fact of the matter is this stuff is much better done by people working in teams uh, together. And, um, you know, I was struck by what I saw um, when I was talking to colleagues in DWP, uh, I, you know, I've seen it in the in the DFE too. Um, one of the, in in the work we've been doing in recent months on making sure that we had access to really good um, uh, IT for uh, children in need who didn't have access to the IT at home was really good collaboration between the head of the policy profession and her team and those uh, people uh, working in commercial and in delivery. Uh, it, it's a team sport. That's what's important. And so one of the things I've been talking to people all day about is uh, whether this time is different to take the title of our opening session. And I'm thinking obviously of Michael Gove's um, speech uh, to digitally a few, a few weeks ago, which got an awful lot of attention. Uh, Dominic Cummings's uh, comments on this actually for years, but in particular after the general election. Um, and also the fact that, the, that this is um, civil service reform is not something that people are out manning barricades uh, to try and bring about. They absolutely know when government doesn't work well or they otherwise assume it should work well. Um, so this is something, the sort of blast of energy uh, on this subject at the moment is very much coming from government um, out of its own conviction that this needs to change. Do you feel that there is something different about this time? Because these ideas uh, and complaints and sense of the problems needing to be solved have been around for some time. And as you've described, people have been working on aspects of them for many decades. So, you know, I've been a civil servant now for 20 years. Um, and so uh, 
I, I've heard the phrase civil service reform <laughs> a great deal. And so it's a it's a it's a great question. And um, yes, I would beware permanent secretaries telling you that this time is different. Uh, let's see what happens. Um, I certainly hope it is. And I certainly think, as your question implies, that there is a lot of potential. I, I you know, simply wouldn't have put my name forward uh, to replace Chris, given the tremendous work he'd done, if I didn't think uh, there was a serious chance of um, taking the work on, on in the way that I've described. Uh, you know, the Institute's done really good work itself on where the conditions for success and clearly uh, they do require very strong ministerial uh, drive and clearly the Chancellor of Duchy of Lancaster is providing that uh, in his speech. Clearly he's got a, a record as a very serious reformer from his time as Secretary of State for Education and elsewhere too. Um, Alex Chisholm, the uh, you know newly appointed Chief Operating Officer, you know, this is his job uh, full time. He's got a great team of people around him. Uh, it's not common, as you say, Bronwyn, for incoming prime ministers to prioritise civil service reform early. And quite often, uh, previous prime ministers have uh, rather regretted leaving it until it was a bit too late. It is, you know, so, so there are, are a number of conditions that are in our favour this time. Um, and so, you know, from my point of view, we need to absolutely take the best opportunity we possibly can. But, um, you know, call me back in a couple of years time and I'll tell you whether we did it. Okay, okay, great. Um, and actually, let me just ask you the final question before we go, go to wider questions. How will you measure success? So it's hard, isn't it, this um, uh, to, to, to find good policy making. You know, one thing that Chris did, um, in fact, Francis Maud, I think, challenged uh, Jeremy Hayward on this. Um, how, would you, how do you know whether your policy making is any good or not? And that international index was created and Chris Wormold was reporting back on it at his talk at the Institute last year. Uh, and, um, you know, the UK uh, civil service came out pretty well on uh, policy making, but it was a sort of subjective measure. Interestingly, the one element of it that we didn't come out very well of, uh, I was looking at it, looking at this again this morning, was the way that policymakers were working with agencies. Interestingly, uh, so sort of my theme about this being a team sport um, uh, is perhaps, and the importance of us making progress on that is perhaps borne out by that analysis. I, I would look to um, evidence uh, from uh, our customers, uh, the public at large. Are, the, are, are we delivering uh, the improvements uh, that we said we were? Uh, I would be looking for evidence from our ministers. Do they feel that we are you know, advising them really clearly about the real world implications uh, of what is proposed. Do we really know what we're talking about? You know, ministers, of course, uh, want to decide what they want to do, but I've never worked for a minister, never, uh, and I've worked for a lot of ministers, who doesn't really appreciate the difference between a policymaker who really understands their subject matter and can talk with real authority about it and genuinely feel a sense of accountability for delivering it from the, well, let's call it bluffer, who sounds convincing, but moves around too much. So I would think some good 360 degree feedback would be an important part of it. Some peer review from elsewhere. I've plenty to learn from Scotland, um, from other countries around the world. Uh, I'm very happy to be scrutinised by the Institute, uh, as, as well as looking at in practice at what we deliver on the ground. Okay, thanks for that. Let, let's go to questions now because there's a lot coming in and a lot of them are very much on the details of the policy profession and what it's like for people in it and where you want, where you particularly want reforms to go. We start with one from Trilly Chatterjee and she says, to what extent the day-to-day -day demands on policymakers, particularly in responding to changes in political climate, direction or whim, disincentivize good policymaking? 
not very kind about politicians, that question. <laughs> well, I think probably the safest thing for me to do is to invite her, if she's not done so already, and she may well have, uh, to read um, Michael Gove's um, Ditchley Speech, the one we've been talking about, in which he starts with, um, uh, when, when he's listing the things that get in the way of good policy making, um, the potential for ministers occasionally um, to want quick announcements um, without much time for the necessary work to be done. And of course, that is a reality. And he describes it well, and he and he, he says the extent to which uh, um, ministers can um, minimise the amount that they do, that'll improve the quality of policy making, won't it? And so, um, you know, he, clearly he was right to make that point. Uh, and that's why I've reinforced the notion of policy making as a team sport with uh, the minister in charge of the team, um, where, uh, you're much more likely to be able to achieve a good result if everybody is working towards the same end and feeling that as circumstances change, they can work together. You know, if that's not possible, sometimes it isn't, uh, sometimes it is imperative just to get on with something fast, uh, then, you know, that's the reality of it. And um, we shouldn't pretend, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm signing off all sorts of stuff at the moment, that there isn't much time to develop because we're in an international crisis. And in those circumstances, you know, it's my job and the, the, that of the team working for me to describe the nature of the risk that we are taking as we have to leap fast. Um, uh, and so that that is clear to the minister and indeed to the auditors when they come along afterwards. And so long as it's clear and people enter into the new policy knowing the reality of the situation they're in, then we've done our job fine. Okay, great, thanks. Let me take a pair of questions now, which are both about uh, this famous word generalist. There's one, um, uh, not signed, so anonymous. Do we need to stop referring to generalist as a dirty word? Understanding how to affect change and developing expertise in role doesn't preclude you being a good generalist, but seems to be approaching heresy currently. Why? If you hold that, because I've got a parallel one really pointing in the opposite direction from Rachel McCann, who says, how do you think the policy profession can shake the tag of generalist? I view our profession as being specialist in policy skills with the ability to learn a policy area and know how to answer the right questions. But generalist suggests a, a jack of all trades, master of none type. So in defense of generalist and uh, not, what do you think? Um, so yeah, the words do get in the way a bit here, don't they? Um, as, a, a, as I was saying earlier, um, the policy profession isn't really a profession. Um, the, the, our work as policymakers isn't just about coming up with a, a set of ideas, uh, but about achieving an outcome. Uh, and I think the generalist is the least helpful word of all. Um, it, I wouldn't um, use the word generalist uh, to describe people in the Department of Education who, um, who really understand uh, teaching and learning or the needs of vulnerable children and feel accountable for um, uh, delivering improvements. Uh, um, the, the the woman who heads my policy profession again, um, uh, you know, has worked in a number of different departments uh, in her career to date. She's worked in DWP, she's worked in Ministry of Justice, as well as the DfE, she's worked in the Cabinet Office. But if you track it back, what she's done in each of those jobs is learn a lot about children and young people, uh, whether that's from a sort of youth justice perspective um, or from a poverty perspective or from an education perspective. And so she's, you know, she's, a, a, she's an expert on a subject matter. 
uh, and she gets the satisfaction from delivering outcomes. And I, I wouldn't call that a generalist. Um, I, I don't really mind what you call it. If we can agree that that's what the task is uh, and that's what good looks like, then you know our aim should be to do that as much as the time as possible and not and not in the way that Fulton quite rightly uh, uh, called it out in 1968, people whose expertise is in the polit political process. You know, that is necessary. Obviously, we work for politicians. If we can't work effectively for them, we might as well give up. But that's just the starting point. Somebody who just understands politics and move from one department to another department, that's hopeless. Okay, thanks very much for that. It's a good one from Simon Judge, who's a retired civil servant. Think, does it matter that so few people have any real understanding of what the civil service does? Uh, I assume he's inviting the answer yes, uh, because he then goes on to say what could be done about it. <laughs> well, yes, as you know, Simon, it's uh, nice to hear from you again. Um, the it's, uh, it's a collective noun that um, hides an enormous amount of variation. Um, so a prison officer uh, is, a civil, is, a, is a civil servant, um, a tax collector is a civil servant, the cabinet secretary is a civil servant. So it's, you know, we, we've been discussing the limitations of a number of collective nouns in this conversation, haven't we? And none of them are particularly useful. I, I, uh, uh, you know, I, I've taken on this particular role because I think that there's a, you know, a tremendous opportunity uh, that, uh, that policymakers can make uh, to, um, improving people's outcomes. Uh, they can only do that if they work collaboratively with other civil servants. I'm not sure uh, that it matters uh, to the public uh, that much um, uh, if they could def define uh, the, the variety of civil servants. Um, it, it matters to us uh, that we get away from the notion of the policy as policy is king or queen, uh, the people who, the clever ones who come up with the ideas and hand them over to other people. That's the thing that I'm wanting to confront. Uh, and everybody I talk to uh, knows they're at their best uh, when they operate that way. Okay, great. Thanks for that. Let's um, go to um, another one. Uh, someone wanting to know whether you think the policy profession should be unbundled so that strategy and policy making and briefing and engagement and delivery are done by specialists. So, um, so I, I, I did my health warning at the beginning about my the absence of a twelve point action plan, and I don't want to get too, into too much detail at this point because I and I would like to work on these questions with colleagues um, uh, and explore um, what will make the biggest uh, difference. I, I've um, I've already suggested. So, but a sort of comprehensive unbundling of the sort you described, instinctively, uh, I'm not in favour of. Clearly, uh, as I've already suggested, a policymaker needs to be able to communicate effectively with ministers because they're in charge. Uh, and um, uh, often that's done in writing. Uh, you mentioned briefings. Um, often it's done face to face. And being able to do it well, be able to talk and listen well is a sort of prerequisite of the job. Um, uh, I've, you know, plenty of ministers get frustrated by the quality of uh, written materials in front of them, uh, and are right so to do. We've definitely got to be able to do that. I think, as I've already said, there is sometimes a role alongside the policymaker for disruptive thinkers, uh, which is quite often we get the strategy function. I would see strategy as something different. Uh, people who aren't necessarily experts in the particular subject matter, but who bring particular tools to bear to get creative thinking going. So I, I would separate that out as something which feeds in. But a policymaker who's good at communicating upwards, outwards, sideways, a good team player, expert in their subject matter, uh, accountable outcomes. Um, th 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 that's all in the bundle. 
Okay, great. Better keeping the bundle rather than uh, yeah. lots of lots of splits for them. Okay, let's go to one from Nick Sujit. I hope you, Nick, I pronounce your name uh, correctly. If policy is about delivering outcomes in a subject in which they civil servants have expertise, is there a future for the idea of a policy profession? Yes, I think that what I have described um, applies. Uh, and certainly from my conversations I've been having with colleagues so far in the last few months in our spare time, um, so not as much as I'm looking forward to having, um, applies in DWP, in the Ministry of Defence, in DEFRA, in DFE. You know, we, uh, there are uh, heads of uh, the policy profession in each department. I've talked about the one I work closest with in DFE, but she has her counterparts in DWP in all of the departments who share that common ambition. Um, uh, uh, they're about achieving um, outcomes for the public, working in teams. The, uh, the, the thing that distinguishes them from each other is the particular subject matter. Uh, but as I've already said, um, uh, the, the, um, if you're working on um, trying to help improve the lives of vulnerable children, you could be doing that in a number of departments. Um, if you're trying to improve national security, you could be doing that in a number of departments. And perhaps a sensible way of thinking about things is from the point of view of, of a set of strategic outcomes. Again, I mentioned Scotland and they've sort of chunked up what they do into five or six different areas, security, environment, um, uh, inclusion, uh, and um, but they're all in that outcomes business. OK, thanks very much for that. Let me go now to two really on the private sector. And this is something that was uh, coming up in this morning's conversations. Um, the rather uneasy relationship sometimes between the private sector and uh, even the heart of the civil service. And there were very much two schools of thought in our morning questions between those who wanted to see more lessons from the private sector and those who um, started throwing around uh, words like Carillion and uh, absolutely did not. So let me read you the two questions. Um, one is, uh, they're both not signed. One is, do you think policy professionals can successfully join the senior civil service as external hires? And the second one is, um, what can be learned from the private sector, not just consultancies, on efficiency, specialism and career development? Well, I'm definitely going to have to answer yes to the first question because that's what I did. Um, I spent the first half of my career not in, uh, in, not in the private sector, but in local government. And I joined the civil service as a director. So another civil service reform that uh, sustained itself, not quite with the same impact as next steps agencies, was um, the reform in modernising government about bringing in recruits from outside. And obviously that has sustained. I felt pretty lonely uh, coming into the senior civil service in 2001, um, but it's much more common now. Um, and, and why not? Uh, 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 wh why shouldn't that be possible? In fact, I think I am a better permanent secretary uh, for the Department for Education, having spent in a previous career time as a director of education in a local authority. I know education nationally, I know it locally. I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of guidance from the Department for Education. Um, I, I understand the system large and small. Um, so. You know, um, I mean, I was able to make that transition partly because there were some sort of shared values and objectives. Um, uh, but I, as I say, I think it makes me better at my job. And even if you want to spend the whole of your career in the civil service, spending uh, plenty of it uh, out uh, either on secondment or at the front line uh, does seem to me really uh, important. Um, the uh, and that's just as true in uh, in business. You know, I've talked a lot about customers from the point of view of, of children 
and adult learners, but of course, much of policy making uh, would see the customer as the business. Uh, um, if you're uh, regulating or in transport or whatever, and so really working collective, collaboratively with your front line, whatever it happens to be, and having a background in it seems to me to make you much better at your job rather than worse at it. If I just just take a, a, um, a, a, a uh, just move sideways for a second, Bronwyn. Um, I um, and my father um, died six months ago, and I had to go and rent a car. Uh, uh, to take us all to the funeral and I went along to the car hire company and uh, the guy who hired me the car uh, very nicely afterwards dropped me off at the tube station when I came back and uh, we had a chat and he said he uh, I asked him what he wanted to do and he wanted to go and run IT for this company with his business degree and I said blimey what are you doing on the front line then uh, renting cars and he said oh well you know the chief executive of our car rental company expects anybody who's going to be working in head office to spend a year at the front line first. Um, and I thought, well, that's interesting, you know, uh, and, and it, do you know what you often find, don't you, this question about what you can learn from the private sector? Um, well, you can often you can often learn um, quite a bit about customer service, um, which, you know, if you're not, it's easy to get yourself in the notion that as public servants, we understand the public better, or we care about the public more. Well, not really, you know, listening to Terry Leahy, uh, you know, the famous story, um, stacking the shelves every Friday uh, at Tesco's, you know, and compare that with the average senior civil servant. So that's something to learn, isn't it? Uh, the, um, as was the example I just gave. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's one of the, the, the classic ways in which the comparison between government and, and, and the uh, private sector doesn't always work. Government isn't going to lose its customers, whereas private companies absolutely are going to lose their customers if they don't work out how to how to deal with them. And so yes, it's 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 certainly the case that you could conclude if you wanted to that you know because ministers are only going to be elected uh, once every four or five years uh, that um, we're less interested in what they think in intervening times. But that's not been my experience of uh, of ministers at all. I mean, I often find I often find um, uh, over the last twenty years myself in a conversation in which I'm watching the discussion between a civil servant and the minister, and the minister knows more about the perspective of the customer than the civil servant because they spend you know every friday uh in the surgery and um it's great of course the ministers feel that sense of connection but i don't see at all why the civil servants working for them shouldn't as well and to take one example of this um we have a series of teams of dfe officials around the country working in some of the most deprived areas opportunity areas it's called in hastings and scarborough um uh, in Blackpool and I, I was listening to some of them the other day talk about their work and they talked about feeling accountable to ministers of course who sign off everything they do but also accountable to the uh, the public that they served and I think it improved their effectiveness you're much more likely to give really clear good quality advice to ministers if you are feeling as accountable to the vulnerable people, or young people of Blackpool as to your ministers. You're much more likely to feel passionate um, uh, about the work you're doing. So I agree uh, that um, if the DfE doesn't do a very good job, uh, it doesn't, uh, it's a monopoly. It doesn't face uh, calamity as quickly as Sainsbury's does. But actually, you know, they're paying our wages and I don't see why um, and, you know, when policymakers at their best, uh, they operate in that way. And I, I see plenty of appetite to operate that more that way. OK, great. Let's go on. Um, and I've got one from Matthew Gill who says you've emphasised 
Jonathan, a, a combination of expertise and teamwork in improving policymaking. But I'm not sure, he says, this is enough. What is the place of core policy skills, like simplifying complexity, including the available evidence, presenting options, making well-justified recommendations? Of course, doing these things well requires expertise, as well as an interest in outcomes and team working with those involved uh, throughout the delivery process. But it is a distinct skill set, he is arguing. How can we ensure policymakers develop it? I, I, I'm absolutely agreeing with you. Um, what I... Um um, what, what I'm trying to do is to build upon um, the work uh, that Chris has done as the head of the policy profession. Uh, and um, the point I was making about um, really clear professional standards for the use of evidence um, to take something that you've raised uh, and training courses that enable you to learn how to do that really well, that's vital. I take that for granted as a uh, a core part of the work. I'm 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 going beyond it. You know, I'm a, I, I'm a mathematician. Um, I'm definitely all in favour of really good quality um, uh, analysis of the evidence and the data uh, in in preparing advice for ministers. Uh, that's that, that's absolutely necessary. Uh, and of course, if you didn't need those skills, then what would be the point of the policy profession at, at all? What I'm saying is that it's not enough. Um, it's not enough to be good at um, that if you don't feel accountable for making an actual difference uh, to the group of citizens who you're there to support. And I think most civil servants I look back, who, who I invite to look back on their careers, don't think they've done that very much. They, they, they find it easier to get um, to demonstrate the quality of the, the advice, the analysis, less often uh, the success in delivering the outcome. Okay, thanks. And I hope that goes to answer that I've actually got quite a few questions on that theme. Many of the questions I've got are really quite long and detailed, uh, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to take them all in as sort of advance warning, but here is one that is almost cryptically short from Roger and Darby saying, are SPADs the elephant in the room? Not in my experience. No, not, not in my experience. Um, I mean, the, the, uh, the, you know, the, the idea of um, you know, somebody chosen by the Secretary of State um, uh, who is able to offer them sort of political advice um, and can explain to civil servants uh, what's in the mind uh, of the Secretary of State is, uh, I I've always found a very useful thing and serve all the civil servants I have worked with. You know, a Secretary of State um, you know, there's only one of them uh, per department, and you know, there's seven and a half thousand people in the DFE. They can't all be asking the Secretary of State all the time uh, what he thinks about something. And so, um, special advisors can play a very important uh, and useful role. You know, uh, obviously, um, uh, just as policymakers and indeed ministers um, and uh, chief executive of the Institute for Government, um, the the, the uh, the job's got to be done well, uh, and it's possible uh, that the special advisor um, could be um, setting out their own view as opposed to the Secretary of State, in which case they're not doing anybody in favour, least of all the Secretary of State. But in my experience, um, the um, special advisors have, have, have played a um, uh, have, have played a useful role. And the, the general point I'm making is that um, we can achieve great things if special advisors, ministers, civil servants, uh, frontline uh, front professionals, citizens themselves are working together 
on the achievement of an outcome in which they are all aligned. We all know that to be true. Um, and where those people are not aligned, it can't be done. Uh, and we just need to be clear, uh, you know, whenever there's an opportunity uh, for people to work together in an aligned way, let's not let, let, let's make the most of that opportunity and where it doesn't apply. Let's just accept that reality. OK, we're coming towards the end, but we can get in uh, two or three more. I think one from Mary Jacobs saying you've spoken about policymakers spending time on front lines and so on. But shouldn't we be encouraging uh, individuals from operations and delivery into policymaking? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And um, uh, hence the um, example I just mentioned very briefly um, from DWP. I, I thought it was rather compelling uh, to hear uh, JP Marks, who you know oversees um, the work of job centres, uh, telling me how the policy director, um, uh, you know, could just pick up the phone. We've had an interesting idea. Let's test it in the field tomorrow. Now that's a great example of collaboration, isn't it? Uh, that, um, to take another example uh, uh, closer to home. Um, I inherited responsibility for the apprenticeships program uh, when the Department for Business was broken up um, and post-16 uh, education came my way under Theresa May and I inherited an apprenticeship policy team and an apprenticeship delivery team and I thought in, in the end that was more, one more team that I needed. I needed an apprenticeship team um, uh, with an SRO who was accountable for delivering the um, delivering the outcome on the ground. That's uh, what I thought policy making should mean. A team of people with uh, with one overall objective, uh, and that's what we created. And I, I, it caused us a bit of a stir at first. I remember talking to some people from the apprenticeship policy team. We said, "Oh goodness me! If I thought you were going to get uh, put us in the same team as the delivery people, I'm not sure if I'd come." Uh, and I thought, "Goodness me! I thought you wanted to do your job because you wanted to deliver on apprenticeships. Um, that was the outcome you were seeking." But it turned in this particular case that what was more important was a sort of notion of policy. Uh, for, for me, what's important is the is the outcome. OK, thanks. Got one from James saying introduction of capability based pay should be welcomed as it helps bring a profession wide approach to developing talent for those professions which lack external comparison, such as the policy profession. Do you see this as a chance to embed some more professional standards into the profession? And we got quite a few about whether you see professional standards in a formal sense coming. Well, I, 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 it sounds like the two of us agree with each other, don't we? That um, uh, that with the opportunity I have, uh, I've been referring to to re sort of redesign the SES pay regime. Um, we do have the potential here to really reinforce um, the sort of incentives that I think people want. Um, they, they want to remain long enough in post to learn the subject matter. They want to remain long enough in post to deliver outcome. They want to remain long enough in post to get expert at the use of evidence. Uh, and um, so I absolutely do see uh, this um, reform as a great opportunity for us to um, embed uh, a lot of the work that Chris uh, was doing as head of profession um, and, and the vision that I've just been setting for it now. Absolutely. OK, but one from Nick Sharman saying, Given your local government experience, it would be good to hear how that can be local government can be incorporated rather than merely consulted over policy implementation. Yes, hello, Nick. Goodness me, it's all all numbers of people I've worked with in the past. Um, great to hear from you as well. Unlike being in the building, you can't see them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I must be sort of wondering uh, who I've had an argument with in my past might be listening, and you're about to bring in. Um, uh, so. Um, 
so look absolutely um uh the you, you'll know um uh, at first hand nick the example i was giving um from um uh, of gcse results and that was a great example of um uh, collaboration between um local and central government and um uh, the and when i was talking about the work on reducing reoffending uh, that was a collaboration in that case uh, with um, the voluntary sector and some private sector funders. And the fact that I was working first for Jack Straw and then for Ken Clark and both of those sector state were very happy for me to develop the thinking in partnership, um, uh, made the policy much uh, more effective, didn't it? Um, and so, you know, whenever there's an opportunity for civil servants to be developing, you know, co-creating um their work it's more likely to be good quality you know in in the end and I, I know you you believe this strongly nick from conversation we've had in the past um you know with the end users themselves um you know the extent to which it's possible to engage um head teachers teachers others in the design of education policy um then it'll be uh the the, the better for it you know difficult of course uh in the current uh, crisis because of the speed we're having to operate but you can be you know confident that we have uh, as we've been working on our policies um doing the, done the very best we can to to engage with others as we develop the guidance rather than just land on an unsuspecting world but obviously there are circumstances in which that's very very hard to do okay and i'm going to squeeze in one more and apologies to all the people i can't get in i've got lots of great questions here uh, um as I think you can see, but um, let me pick one that goes in a slightly different direction. Again, again not signed, but it says, how can you guard um, policy professionals against over-identifying with the sector that they are specialising in or that they're getting to know about, which um, might work against their impartiality and inhibit them from unpopular but necessary actions? So getting too expert and captured. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, cl cl clearly, if a, if, a, if a civil servant is simply acting as a mouthpiece uh, for um, teachers, um, then they're not being very effective at their job. Uh, teachers don't need anybody to act as a mouthpiece for them. Uh, they can do it perfectly well themselves. Um, and so you're, you're right, it's, it's important for us to be clear about our role uh, as uh, policymakers, which is not uh, simply to advocate. But, but um, that can't be, can it, an argument against, against knowing the subject matter really, really well. In fact, you might say if you want to be able to distinguish between um, a, a situation in which uh, a provider is um, arguing something subjectively to the benefit of the end user uh, or in the, in, in the interest of their members, um, then really understanding the subject matter will make you much more effective in that role. Uh, won't it? Um, uh, th th that's the, that's the way that I would see it. And uh, you know, I, I, you know, every time I I'm in a school, or in a nursery, or in a college, or in a university, or talking to a group of social workers, you know, uh, I learn more. But I learn the most when I'm talking to the young people who are being supervised by social workers, who are being taught by teachers. You know, in the end, I feel accountable to ministers, but I'm doing it for the children and for the adult learners. And, you know, that's what I identify with, uh, not with uh, uh, a notion of uh, provider 
capture, albeit that I have enormous respect for teaching. Uh, my father was a teacher. I'm not a teacher. Uh, I just don't think I've got what it takes to be one. Uh, not the patience for a start, but uh, has been sorely tempted, uh, uh, tested during um, lockdown with my daughter, poor her. But it's not a coincidence, I think, that I'm the permanent secretary of the Department of Education because I, with my dad having been a teacher and my mother a children's social worker, we oversee those worlds. And I think that there's something that I can do as a policymaker that enables the, you know, the children who are looked after and supported by teachers and social workers to do the best they can. That's what motivates me. That's what I hope uh, and see motivates people when they're at the best in the DfE. And that's um, really, really beyond anything else. Uh, what I want to bring to the policy profession. Jonathan, thank you very much indeed. With that, we've come to the top of the hour. As broadcasters still say, even though the era of uh, uh, clocks on the wall is pretty much gone. Um, everyone, thank you for terrific questions. Uh, thanks for sending them. I'm sorry I could get in a, only a fraction, but I hope that they, uh, the answers we did cover really answered actually quite a lot of um, what people were asking. Uh, Jonathan, thanks for indeed for your patience, which you have demonstrated. Uh, uh, and it tends to be more of a kind of fusillade of, uh, of, of questions in this format than, um, than the, in the traditional handing a microphone around the room. So thank you for that. And thanks very much indeed for your thoughts on this. We will come back to you in the spirit of uh, holding things to account. Okay. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.